Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. This is Jen here. If you are wondering why we have an episode again so soon, it's because Tina and I wanted to bring you as many episodes as possible. While most of us are in quarantine and unable to really go anywhere and do much. So today's guest is Kathy Kang. Kathy is a writer, speaker, and yoga teacher. She is the author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent, and How to Speak Up contributing editor for Sojourners Magazine, and co-author of More Than Serving Tea. Ms. Kong was a newspaper reporter in Green Bay and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, before spending more than two decades in vocational ministry, where she focused on leadership development and training leaders in diversity and justice. So we are really excited to have Kathy on the show today. We're going to talk about her and her work, but we're really going to dig deep into a recent story regarding the president and his use of the term Chinese virus when referring to COVID-19. So we're going to talk about that and the impact on the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities so that we can be more equipped to enter into some of these hard conversations and be better allies. We hope you enjoy. Well, let's just jump in. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful that you're here with us and we will talk about a lot of things, but I have to first let our audience know that even though this particular conversation is kind of spontaneous as a result of some recent racist statements that the president has made. I have been wanting to talk to you for a very, very long time, just because you have been on the radar as a woman with a voice and on a mission to use that voice and to help encourage others use that voice. So I've been following you for a while and I'd like to share, I don't know if you even know this, just how I came to know about you. So I want to share that story with you. Yeah. My oldest daughter graduated from Baylor University. Oh, that's right. (laughs) So you already know where I'm going now. Oh, yes. Go for it. (laughs) Oh, wow. So you came to Baylor. You were invited. uh, And I don't think I know all the details. So I'd love for you to to share with us about that story. But I what I do know is that you were treated horribly when you went to visit Baylor as a an invited guest and speaker. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us what happened? Yeah. So that was actually my second visit to Baylor. My first visit was fabulous. I had been invited by their Department of Multicultural Affairs to come and do their talk at the annual, or maybe it's like the first Asian American Pacific Islander luncheon. And I had a fabulous, wonderful, delightful experience being hosted for that particular event. I met some wonderful students, got to interact with a few faculty and staff. You know, there was this big luncheon. They hosted a book signing. Um, I knew where I was going, who was going to get me there. It was wonderful, which is why I said yes when I was invited back to be a chapel speaker. And uh, so I 
spoke at chapel and it was at the first chapel. So folks who aren't familiar, there are they run three chapel services in a row, like class periods. It is required for freshmen and I think transfer students. And I always ask when I'm invited to new spaces, like, how did you find me? Mm. What do you know about me? I kind of feel like I'm an open book. So people should know who they're inviting and what they can expect. I was told, no, no, we know, you know, that's exactly what we want. And I was actually preaching out of Mark and using the story of Jesus interacting with the bleeding woman and talking about injustice. I felt like that was an appropriate topic. It's chapel. I wanted to use the Bible as part of the talk. But I also used an example of a young Black child being arrested, in part because his behavior was connected by this teacher's aide uh, for not standing up during the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. And it also happened in a state that has a history of over-policing and then particularly over-policing Black and brown children, which, you know, shouldn't, they shouldn't be over-policed to begin with. They shouldn't be policed, period. So I mentioned that and there was a student who got up and said, liar, something like that. I don't exactly remember what happened, but I have never been interrupted in that way. It really unnerved me. I felt very unsafe, quite shaken up. And I did not feel supported by the administration who questioned me on my source for that particular news story and, you know, on and on and on. What really ended up happening was that I eventually wrote about that incident, but I did not name the university. I just talked about it as a safety kind of concern for women of color who do this kind of work, who travel. Usually we're traveling alone into spaces that we're not familiar with and the risk that we take for this work. And then I found out like two, maybe a week after that blog post had gotten up, and I was out of the country at the time, that the student who got up and interrupted me so rudely, then with the backing of a student organization made a video about me. Okay. I didn't even know about that. What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So they made a video, this student defending his behavior and why it was okay. And then called me all sorts of different things on this video. And that's how I found out something was happening because the person who invited me for that first delightful trip got wind of this video and warned me and said, I know you're not in the country, but I also want you to be prepared for when you land. And so when I got back online, it was parents of Baylor students. I mean, it was white parents of white students and white alumni calling me all sorts of things, jumping on my blog having lots of opinions about my behavior towards this poor white child. And it just blew up. I remember when I started to see, well, and I heard about it from my daughter first Mm -hmm. and she wasn't a student. She actually worked um, for the provost office at the time she had graduated. And so she was in the administration office Mm -hmm. working directly with some of the, um, the leadership of the university and to hear it, from her perspective in from just from that side of it. But then to, I I was disappointed, incredibly disappointed with the lack of response from the administration of Baylor, because you're right. It, it turned into these students Mm -hmm. and their parents and Mm -hmm. other parts of the, the, like you said, the student led organization where it was all of this centering and protecting the inappropriate behavior of the student who heckled you 
and who disrespected you and interrupted you during a chapel service at which you were an invited speaker. And it, it, it just was mind boggling. And then the lack of response and the lack of holding that student accountable for his blatant disrespect towards you. It it was completely, uh, well, I will say not surprising from that type of an institution. Correct. Um, but at the same time, heartbreaking because then what heartbreaking as well as uh, we had the opportunity to see a lot of other students, right, who were yes. supportive of you, who then spoke out. And yes. that was really incredible to see as well, just the, yes. the rallying behind you. Yes, there was uh, the Coalition of Asian American Students. I forget the their official organization name. And the Baylor chapter of the NAACP were the two student groups that quickly responded publicly. And I was so grateful for that and so excited and proud as someone who's older and the parent of folks their age to see their engagement. And, you know, that gave me hope. But yes, I I wasn't that surprised, but very disappointed Mm -hmm. at a university who also has, you know, some experience in not doing great around PR. (laughs) Right. Um, Kind of very wildly, remarkably and fabulously known for being hardcore. Right. Right. Um, So it was disappointing all around. And then I didn't write a lot about it afterwards because it was just too exhausting. But when I have the opportunity to talk about it, I do let people know, you know, I did have a phone call with some folks in the administration. They were very reluctant to um, have a public statement. And when they did give me one, they made it very clear that they were not going to share it on their official channels, right? So I could share it on mine, but my reach is going to be very limited and it's not going to reach their alumni. It's not going to reach their students. It's not going to reach their donors. But one thing that had happened was that I was asked, you know, as somebody who has gone through this, what can you tell us? Like, what advice would you give us? And it was at that point, I really decided, you know what? No, I'm not doing this. And I had said, what you are asking for is something that you as an institution can hire a consultant for. Mm -hmm. And I am happy to be that consultant, but that's a separate conversation and a contract. I will not do that in this phone conversation. This is about an apology from the institution to a guest. You are asking for work and I'm not going to give it to you for free because then no one can hold you accountable to that, right? You can, you can say, I had this conversation and we asked for it and it was great. And then nothing ever happens. If you put money on the table, that's a different thing for an institution. My guess is that they never did that. They didn't approach me. So, but that's one of those things where you can see online, you will see activists say, I'm not going to give any more free labor or I've engaged in this conversation enough online, I'm done. And that's what that's about is at some point, individuals and institutions can't expect other people to do all of the work and to give it for free. (laughs) 
I, I think that's so important. And I applaud you for just your knowledge and your commitment and integrity to say that to them and to hold them accountable and to verbalize that, to set that expectation that if they are expecting you to do what is basically PR work. And if, mm-hmm. they, and if they want to take the steps to repair the harm, this is what needs to happen. And this is how they need to compensate you for it as well. As a Black woman um, and to see you as a woman of color being invited to APWI and, and having that being an exciting thing, but then to see the way that you were treated by a student and Mm -hmm. the non-response from the institution, from the administration. It just speaks to, folks, this is the type of covert racism that Mm -hmm. people of color experience every day, all the time, that doesn't always get the media attention. It doesn't always go viral. It's not in your face, but this is the harm that we experience on a regular ongoing basis. And then on top of that, we then have leaders and our president in particular, I'd like to move the conversation into Mm -hmm. the harm that is being caused because Donald Trump insists on referring to COVID-19 as the China virus. So just to give and kind of create the context and then Mm -hmm. really go into it. The official name that has been given to this global pandemic by the World Health Organization, the CDC, I I don't know any other institutions that are calling it anything other than um, COVID-19. It's also been referred to as the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And yet what we have seen here in the past several days, especially today being Friday, um, March 20th, that Donald Trump has continued and been insistent upon using, and even despite that he's been corrected, Donald Trump has insisted on calling this the Chinese virus, despite the fact that that is not the name of it. And despite the fact that it has been brought to his attention multiple times that this is racist behavior and that is causing actual harm to the, to all of us, first of all, but specifically it is causing and creating violent targets to the Asian American communities. So Kathy, I know that you've been asked recently to really speak to this because I know that you have, you. this is a voice, your voice that you use to um, highlight these types of things and to go into it. So we appreciate your willingness to come onto the show um, really kind of at the last minute to talk about this with our listeners. Would you share your thoughts? Oh, many thoughts. Where should <laughs> I begin? Um, so, you know, with the original outbreak that happened in China, and was that in December? I think even maybe November. Okay. Um, And so when news started coming out, I distinctly remember folks in my circle of Asian Americans, we right away were like, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. Literally, here it comes to the United States. And here is another situation in which Asian Americans here will be targeted as caring or being connected to this, at the time, epidemic, and what impact that was going to have. And so you saw the news coverage of what was happening in Wuhan and um, people in masks and you know entire villages being closed off and the images of uh, Chinese trying to handle 
what eventually was going to go across the globe. But for those of us in my community, we, you know, on our own chats, we're saying like, oh, well, what does this mean for our folks here? What does this mean for folks who already travel wearing masks? That's not a new thing. (laughs) Um, And what does that mean in terms of how we need to be prepared for this? So we already knew this was coming. We weren't surprised by the help it got from the president and other politicians who insist on calling it the Chinese virus. Um, But as the epidemic began to spread and then eventually was named a pandemic, it was still on our radar as the Asian American community knowing what was happening globally. So there were incidents happening elsewhere. There were incidents happening in London, and I believe also, oh gosh, I want to say Paris, but I could be wrong. And I think even the hashtag, I am not a virus, came from France. I've been trying to figure out like who was actually the person behind it so I can give credit. But the community was already aware that this was going to happen. One, because, you know, people can say Chinese virus, but no one actually stops to ask Asian Americans are you Chinese? I mean, usually the question is, where are you from? And here in the United States, it's often, you know, Chicago, (laughs) you know, the name of some town, some city, but uh, there's no differentiating. So I think that's also the thing that for listeners, I want folks to understand when people call it the Chinese virus, this is for the broader Asian American community because we are under that label because it's a political label. Asian Americans, we don't share language. We share a continent. How's that? <laughs> right? Yeah. But our, there are a lot of distinctions around language and culture. And um, even within our distinct countries, there are different languages. And so this label of Asian American is a very sociopolitical label that came out in the 60s. And and so even though it's being called Chinese virus, it is impacting this very diverse community. So I lived in China for Mm -hmm. about six years. I had my children there. I have a lot of friends who still live there. So when the coronavirus first surfaced, I was doing a lot of listening, watching, reading, and I had a very similar expectation. I was beginning to see some very troubling posts of people, you know, taking a picture of themselves with an Asian person behind them saying, this person just coughed in my direction, I'm going to smack them, or, you know, like a certain level of like violence and attitude that was really troubling. For the first couple of months, I was paying a lot of attention to and trying to uplift the stories of people who were facing these racist and xenophobic attacks. Our family actually went very intentionally to the Chinese grocery stores and even other Asian restaurants just to give business and do business there. But the thing that's interesting to me and troubling to me is the number of people who also don't seem to think that this shift in the president's language is problematic. And they don't understand why it's problematic to say Chinese virus and why it's intentional. And so that's something, I don't know if you could speak to that, just the what you think the president is attempting to do in this. I think it's so many levels. I've been telling people it's a strategic move on his part to 
distance himself from responsibility. And I think also to intentionally confuse people because uh, legitimate news services and sources are using either novel coronavirus, which is really long, or coronavirus, which is inaccurate and imprecise, or COVID-19, which is uh, what the World Health Organization decided to name the virus uh, so that it would not have a geographical or uh, kind of uh, personal connection to a a people group. Um, I think that it's important to understand that when the president of the United States is trying to connect this virus, not with a place and not with a government, but with a people, right? That is intentional. He could call it China virus, which has its own problems and is equally dangerous. Or he could call it the uh, Chinese Communist Party virus, <laughs> right? <laughs> CCP. Right, he could right. call it that if this was really a response and kind of a childish retort to the Chinese blaming the United States, right? This, this other political drama that's happening in the background. But he is intentionally labeling and connecting over and over and over to an entire people group, right. an entire ethnicity. And as far as we are concerned, broadly Asian Americans, he's doing it on purpose. Oh, for sure. And it's, you know, I only... Uh, found out about him referring to it as the Chinese virus a couple of days ago. So I don't know if that means he just started referring to it as the Chinese virus a couple of days ago, or if that's just when it came on my radar. But somebody sent me, they inboxed me a screenshot of one of his tweets because I do not follow him on Twitter because of, you know, my blood pressure and same love of myself and all of that. But when I went on there, I was more disturbed that tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. were resharing these. Mm-hmm. And then you had people in the comment section arguing about the fact that, and I want to address this because a lot of people who are going to go out and have these conversations who listen to this podcast are going to be met with this retort. And it's interesting because people are putting out there that, well, in the beginning, CNN and MSNBC and da, da 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 and all the you know media people were putting were using the term Chinese coronavirus, mm-hmm. and they show this video montage as though that's proof that this is just the left trying to pick and choose their battles and being hypocritical. And the thing that I said to a number of people was like, no, no, actually, in the beginning, this was a coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure exactly which one. And it had originated in China, as far as we could tell. And so for the purpose of saying which coronavirus, it was being referred to that way. Once the World Health Organization coined it and gave it the name COVID-19, people started changing to COVID-19. And maybe even back then, people were saying, look, you shouldn't even be calling it the Chinese coronavirus. Right. Um, And they changed their language. And and so it's like, and to your point too, even with reference to the German measles or the Spanish flu or these different things, do we really want to go back historically and use history as an example <laughs> from which we take names or processing given the givens? Mm-hmm. So exactly. I think it's just important to understand that um, just because it was said this way 
doesn't make it okay for the president. And the president knows very well exactly what he is doing. It's incredibly intentional and incredibly damaging. Oh, and absolutely. I'm fired up about it, but yeah, absolutely. And it's infuriating to me the energy people are putting into defending the use of the term, which again does not surprise me. However, it is so disappointing and unfortunate, especially because of the pandemic, especially because of the reality that everyone is facing around the globe, but then, you know, bringing it closer to home. We are all social distancing and certain cities and states, residents are being told to hunker down. And in the midst of what is a very real crisis, one, people are still denying that this is real. And Two, like I said, the energy that's being put into defending things that if we wanted to go back are not defensible. And so, you know, to your point, Tina, I think that phrase, you know, when you know better, do better, I think is a phrase. I'm not convinced that as a country, that's actually a value or the way we want to learn and do business. Absolutely. That's what, that's what they're, that's what we are demonstrating. That is what the administration is demonstrating that they have no intention of doing better now that they are being, Mm -hmm. that's been brought to their attention that they should know better. And that's kind of where I want to shift the conversation just a little Mm -hmm. bit, because Mm -hmm. we've, we've talked about Trump using the term China virus, Chinese virus. We've talked about his um, insistence in and, and justification of it, as well as so many people who are also justifying the use of it. I, I, I think this is a good time to really explore the difference between intent versus impact. Mm. So while there are, you know, Trump, for example, can explain why he's using it and his intent and whether that's his honest intent, we don't agree um, because we do know that he has, he is known for, and he is very consistent in using racist language that those are his dog whistles. Those are, that's what he does. So this is not surprising or new from him. But my other concern is the impact that it has on the Asian American community specifically and what what is what we're seeing and what's happening and the, and how the Asian American community is being targeted. Yeah, I've got a friend of mine and Dr. Russell Jung, he's the chair and professor of Asian American studies at San Francisco State University. Um, he and some other researchers have put together a database in which Asian Americans can now report these racist xenophobic incidents because you know, no one's tracking it. Um, and he and his researchers from San Francisco State have found that there were nearly 500 attacks reported in February. Um, and the kind of increased spread of coronavirus around the globe is parallel to the increase in physical and verbal attacks on people of Asian descent. So there are people who do the numbers thing and not just the anecdotal piece, who are working behind the scenes to track this because, again, it's not apparently important enough for other institutions like maybe our government to acknowledge what's happening. Jennifer, you were talking about when this was first starting to blow up. And I do remember seeing early on as COVID-19 was moving and popping up here in the U.S., and that was a little slow as well because of all of the dysfunction in the government, those 
calls to action. You know, go shop in Chinatown, go support your local Chinese restaurants and other small businesses owned by Asians and Asian Americans. So I saw that call. And again, it was like, of course, because people are going to connect that which was happening in China and in a specific province of China to the broader Asian American community. So there were people who are already aware of that. And then to see that now in the US at the level that we have COVID-19, it didn't surprise me that the president made that shift. And I don't remember whether or not he had used that terminology, Chinese virus, earlier on, but I did see that tweet passed on. So like you, I don't, I'm, I don't follow him because it's not good for my health, but it was the first thing on all of the threads and all of the streams that he had tweeted this, very specifically the Chinese virus, as things were ramping up here and criticism of his administration's leadership around COVID-19 was ramping up because people are dying. And so again, the intent he says is to make sure people are clear about who or what was responsible. He's putting responsibility on a people group, right? He's putting responsibility on an ethnicity And we all know that people at Ground Zero are not the ones with the power. And so I was doing an Instagram Live with a good friend of mine and founder of Chasing Justice, Sandra Van Opsel. And she said something, I'm paraphrasing, that pandemics show us the real distribution of power. Right. And so people on ground, you can do what you can do for your neighbor and your family and your community. But in terms of really moving the needle, shifting things, that's going to happen from the higher ups, right? We've we've needed governors and mayors to step in Mm. to tell people these things are closing, schools are closing, restaurants aren't serving, you need to stay indoors. So we see who has the power and the authority, but what Trump is doing is trying to pass blame, not responsibility. He's trying to pass blame. And I do think that it will cause confusion and divert attention. So again, it's, it's tricky because I want listeners to understand the danger in him calling it the Chinese virus, but also for us not to take our eyes off the reality of the situation, which is... Y'all need to stay inside if you can stay inside, right? And again, we are Americans. So we say we want to do what we want to do. And this is what happens. This is what happens when you are a very individualistic society. So if you want to point and pass the buck and say, look at this blame and all of that kind of stuff, China shut things down. Yes. Right? Uh, Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, more important than any other holiday. Yep. Shut down. And we have spring breakers traipsing around still. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. I know some of those spring breakers. Same here. Right? <laughs> With those pictures. I live in the suburbs of Chicago. The parade for St. Patrick's Day shut down. But we still had fools bar hopping 
on St. Patrick's Day weekend. I'm furious because I think the language and his pivot is taking a lot of energy and I want to address the racism, but I also want to be mindful that the fight is also against COVID-19. People need to stay indoors. Oh, you know? This is such a good point. We do have to battle COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it is. It's interesting that he keeps using his power and authority and his reach to keep putting that out there, the Chinese virus, the Chinese virus, while he is up there standing with a bunch of people and clearly not social distancing and all of those things, that it confuses people because he's using one term and everyone else is using another term and trying to shift blame while also giving himself a 10 for his current handling of the situation. Mm. Uh, right. So it's, it's the both. And like, I'm going to blame somebody else, but also take all of the props for whatever he thinks he's doing. And so again, his intent is very clear. He's going to take whatever credit he can, but blame all of the failures on the Chinese. And because we are in America, the blame then goes to Asian Americans. And it's always funny because then people are like, oh, that's not what he's doing. And it doesn't matter. And we're colorblind. Mm. <laughs> right. Like, not just you are not colorblind. Continuing to reinforce right. the, the ignorance and continuing to be blind towards the, you are, it is being presented to you that this is, it's called COVID-19. Why not use that term, especially when Americans are being affected and right. Right. Not, there's no concern, sympathy towards the uptick in the attacks towards Asian Americans. So right. it, it's all the way around showing us who we've already known he is. But right. it continues. It, 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 he's, he's, he's incredibly consistent. Yes, absolutely. Which is great. I mean, it makes it easy for those of us who know that's his MO. It's a little exhausting. And, you know, under the current circumstances, it's a little scary. I have parents who are older and they also slightly feel like they're invincible, but I also feel like that's related to their past experiences as being immigrants and having overcome a lot of other situations. My parents both were growing up post-Korean War, so they've experienced different trauma so this isn't new for them. So I do think that that's part of their like, well, yeah, we went to church on Sunday, but we all like had a pew in between us kind of thing. And I've been angry at them, but also concerned because I don't want them walking around their neighborhood. <laughs> I don't want them to be a potential target because I can't control other people, but I certainly can let my parents know how I feel about them walking around their neighborhood. Um, up until maybe a week ago, I was supposed to be traveling and I went back and forth with my husband about, do I wear a mask? Do I do what I normally do when I get on a plane, which is wipe everything down? Because even before COVID-19, flying was gross. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I was that traveler who like had the hand sanitizer and had the little wipes to wipe down literally everything that I had to touch, would that look even weirder or make me more or less of a target flying now 
than it would have in the past. And folks who follow me and know me know that often when I travel, I will wear like a statement shirt that has a provocative phrase or statement on the shirt on purpose. Love that. Um, Me too. (laughs) And because it's so fun, but I also was thinking maybe I shouldn't do that on this next trip because I don't need to add to the concern I have already for my safety. And now all of this COVID-19 stuff is happening. Now I don't need to worry about traveling, but the added weight of the president of the United States. And then again, I am a Christian and evangelical adjacent. And for your listeners who aren't, the concern for me is that the president has so aligned himself with the evangelical white community that that gives permission to a another swath of people who are going to use their religious beliefs to also support and back the use of that racist terminology. So Mm. it's multiple levels of concern that I'm already fighting racism in the broader community and culture. I've been fighting racism within the church. Now we've got a president who says he's an evangelical and does the things. So then you mix all of that together and it just continues to give people permission. And that's what's so exhausting about this is that it is very much about power. It's very much about normalizing xenophobia and racism. I am so grateful that you have really brought to light so many of these things and explained a lot of why this is problematic because I think our listeners, all of us, we're watching and trying to stay aware and be mindful of everything from protecting ourselves um, and taking as many precautions as we can, many of us finding reliable news sources just paying attention overall, listening to what is happening with closures. We're trying to take care of our parents and the concerns we have with our parents, as well as our kids. Now schools are shut down and kids are home and there's so much going on. And I think on top of just the normal everyday, what we're living with and just being and showing up in the world, especially as people of color, what we already deal with on top of this anxiety of now dealing with this global pandemic, hoping to affect the curve and seeing it flatten. All of these things happening. And it just was really, it's really great that you have helped us to kind of put some good information so that people can understand how can we look at this through an anti-racist lens? Mm-hmm. How can we look at what's happening through an anti-racist lens? So with everything going on, Kathy, I would love to know how are you finding sanity and finding joy? How are you <laughs> taking care of yourself right now? That's a great question. Um, I'll be honest, I'm still trying to figure that out. We returned to a full house of five on Tuesday. So we have three children. They are older, 18, 20, and 24. Our 24-year-old has come back indefinitely because she was living in Brooklyn and her work is in New York City and everything that she does for a living has shut down. So we told her, yeah, travel is optional. We feel like this is not optional. Just come home. Come home. And if you're going to be sick, you'll be sick here. (laughs) 
And then our 20-year-old is a junior in college, and he was coming home anyway for spring break. And then two weeks of additional home online learning, we just found out a few days ago that it is online for the rest of the semester. So we are trying to figure out when we will go back and move him out of the dorms. And then our youngest is a senior in high school. So this week we went online and then next week is supposed to be spring break. And then it's supposed to be another week of online learning. We shall see because the high school announced that there was a staff member who tested positive. Oh. Yeah. So we are waiting. We don't know what will happen. So it has been a crazy couple days, I'm sure for everyone. Yeah. So what I have been trying to do is drink lots of water and limit my caffeine, limit my alcohol. And I'll be honest, that's been a little hard. <laughs> um, when like working is like working all day from home, it's kind of like there's no cutoff. Right. Right. And because everyone's doing stuff online, there literally is no cutoff. You're, you could just be doing stuff online all day long. So I'm a yoga teacher. And uh, early this week, I did two online like chair, mat, really super easy movement, yoga, breathing sessions for people. And for me personally, that has been the best thing. So yesterday we did like a 20 minute family high intensity workout together. <laughs> Nice. It was pretty funny. Nice. We're like in the family room and the kitchen, you know, telling our son, watch out for the ceiling fan. <laughs> um, and trying to move our bodies because there is so much stillness and it is hard. My son and I went for a walk around the block and there were lots of people out for walks, but we all kind of did the elevator nod. So if you can, we are not on lockdown. We have not been told to shelter okay. in place. We've not been told that. So we have reminded ourselves we need to get outside. Uh, and it's not, it's still like 30 degrees outside here. So we can't just like open the windows and be like, ah, fresh air. I have been trying to get outside. I will be honest again, uh, sleep has been very difficult for me this week. Same. I'm anxious. When I do find sleep, it's not restful. So I'm, waking up after a couple of hours and I, I don't feel rested. And so a few friends of mine and I are trying to schedule like an evening online get together. And I'm taking the cues from my children who have been doing that with their friends. So my daughter had like wine night with her apartment mate and they were just on FaceTime together. And our two boys have been on Google Hangouts with their friends, trying to connect face-to-face -face as much as possible virtually. And so I think I'm definitely going to shift to that and trying to just take care of my body. So I haven't been like doing horrible snacking in part because I just didn't buy a lot of that stuff when I went out for my mad rush over the weekend. It was a lot of like, we have the privilege and the access to fruits and vegetables and healthier foods because I knew I was just going to eat the stale cookies in my pantry anyway. I didn't need to replenish that. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm going to try to read some and stay off of the technology later today because in part, it's, there's just been a lot of screens around the house. Yeah. Yeah, just a lot of, of mobile 
yeah. device yeah. time. So yeah, I think that's, that's uh, I'm trying not to do the same thing is kind of limit my exposure to social media. in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing with us those things that you're doing. And I'm glad to hear that you and your family are are well and that you've got a plan that, that you're, you're working on to take care of yourselves. And I love that you mentioned just moving our bodies so that I think mm-hmm. that's helpful for folks to keep in mind and get in some physical activity because um, we do need to be taking care of ourselves. Yeah. Um, having you on has been such a pleasure and an honor. And I definitely don't want us to end this conversation without talking a little bit about your book. So you are the author of a book called Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. (laughs) Talk a little bit about the book for our listeners. Yeah, so it came out in 2018 and it was funny because when it came out, people were like, oh, it's so timely. It's great that you timed it that way. And I was like, well, actually, no, I missed a lot of deadlines. And so it was supposed to come out earlier. Apparently it's still timely because things are just upside down constantly. And I wrote the book to help encourage women particularly women, and to encourage women of color whose stories and experiences are not often centered in the whole genre of (laughs) self-help. So, you know, I don't necessarily think of finding your voice as the typical self-help topic, but, you know, it is. I do think it is. it falls under that space of like trying to find yourself, trying to figure out what matters to you, what is really important to you, to shed the expectations of culture and society that you have bought without interrogating. And then what are you going to do about that? And so I wrote the book in part because I had been thinking about writing a book for a very, very long time, but didn't feel like I had enough expertise I didn't have any degrees. I wasn't, I didn't think that I had anything to say. And then at some point, somebody continued to remind me if you wait to write out of a space of expertise and perfection, you'll never do it. Mm -hmm. And so that was for me a reminder of that book was never going to be perfect, it wasn't for everyone. And I think I had bought into the lie that all of these other books, these, you know, these self-help books by white authors were for everyone. That viewpoint and the centering encompasses all people. Mm-hmm. And I had to remember, actually, no, most books from the nonfiction space, when it comes to that self-help, spirituality, that kind of learning leadership space, I've always had to contextualize. And that gave me more courage to finally sit down and say, here are the things that I have learned. Here are the things that I am learning. Here are the things that I am experimenting with. And here's the social location that I come from. And to tell those stories and to name that. And so that's why I wrote it because I'm tired of books written by white authors who don't acknowledge the fact that they come from a very specific social location and they never have to contextualize for anyone. Right. I can't wait to read the book. I think actually, Jen, and we didn't talk about this. uh, I want to make to this episode's spotlight instead of it being a black spotlight, which is what we typically do at the end of every episode. This is going to be a Korean American spotlight. And I just want to uplift your book and encourage folks to get the book. And that's, I'm including myself in that. So I cannot wait to read it. I cannot wait. Thank you. 
I, I also just want to ask you, where can folks find you and stay up with what you are doing? I am on Instagram and Twitter at Ms. M.S. Kathy Kong. And I have a Facebook page and an author page. I would prefer people follow and like my author page. In this COVID-19 season, I am uh, going through my connections on my personal page and trying to edit that. And okay. yes. Oh, I do have a blog. <laughs> kathykong.com. I am not on it often, but trying to get back into the swing of things. But there, that's where you can find like 10 years of writing. Awesome. Wonderful. Kathy, thank you so much. Activist, author, speaker, yoga teacher. I'll be talking with you in a little bit because I do need to hire you to do some yoga for me because I know that's something that you are offering right now online. So we'll talk about that. Just, Just overall remarkable and inspiring human being. Thank you so much for speaking with Jen and I. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.